If you ever needed any proof that Season 4 is kind of a different animal, I present this episode. This is a true rarity in Trek. Not that this kind of thing hasn't happened before, but it is exceptionally rare that we have an episode entirely focused on characters with no threat of the week, and even the B-plot, A-plot format, actually there's a C-plot here as well, is entirely just about more character focus and more breather. You know, trying to de-gauze after previous stuff, establish new character stuff, and acknowledge the events that have happened. The most obvious episode to connect this to is Family over on TNG. If you remember an episode that, you know, Berman was very against doing. Oh my gosh. And even then, there was the caveat that at least some of the the episode had to be in space. You know, to make up for it. But here, they're allowed to do an entire episode like this. Oh, sure, there's some uh, action sequences. There's the brawl in the bar, and there's the dream sequence. But in the bar, that's two people who are military-trained, you know, trained by Mako's combat specialists against a bunch of drunk patrons in a bar, so there's no real threat. And the dream is obviously not only a dream, but even if something had happened and he'd rolled off the edge or whatever, he had another climber there to check him, so no threat there. Now, the biggest threat here is, of course cost, but we'll get to that in just a second. This one's written by Sussman, directed by Croker. The other thing that's going to start happening, and I'm not going to track all of these, because there's a dozen gabrillion of them, rough approximation. One of the things that season four is going to start doing a lot is connecting to future Star Treks. Now you're probably thinking, well, yeah, it's a prequel, but they haven't been doing that. If you've really been paying attention, for the most part, Trek, uh, that is to say Enterprise, hasn't been trying to connect with the rest of Trek. It hasn't been deliberately saying, okay, well, this is where this comes from in this future episode, and this is where this comes from. I'm reminded of a quote, which I believe was Rick Berman. I actually tried to find this quote. Couldn't find it. So, asterisks, okay? But someone said something about how it's impossible to maintain continuity across, you know, all of Star Trek. There's just too much, right? I mean, nobody would ever actually sit here and just go off of their memory and try to actually keep all these things contiguous, right? You know, there's actually a... What's funny, there's a job uh, in Hollywood. Usually, This is usually more of a movie thing, but it applies to television as well. It's called Continuity Specialist. What's funny is that's not their job. Their job is to keep continuity within the movie or within the episode, you know, reminding the actors and the prop makers and and the cameramen of which exact point in the story they're at. This is what you've just done. This is what you're about to do. And and that way the actors can keep in mind, because you film stuff out of order, right? Like, that's pretty normal, especially when you're doing different types of makeup calls with the same people. So it helps them to remember which point in the story they're at. I just point this out because... You'd think having a continuity specialist, like an external continuity specialist, would be something that they could do. Just hire on people to be like, you know. Either way, they kind of got that unintentionally here. Because Sussman, the, uh, the, the, the duo whose name I can never remember, uh, Judith and Garfield. Judith and Garfield, Sussman, and uh, Kodo were Star Trek geeks. They were the external continuity specialists. They just also happened to be in charge of running the show. Which, hey, here we go. So we're going to get references to a muck time, to the Jeffries thing. They're even going to connect to yesterday's Enterprise in this very episode. Just little stuff like that. Trying to establish threads that would eventually come up in the future. So. Let's start with the... There's three plots. Let's start with the DePaul plot. Tucker has no home to go to. Uh, yeah, 
got a little bit of the Lord of the Rings trilogy thing going there. Well, we saved home, but, well, I didn't save home for me. I saved home for them. Not quite as impacting, of course. It's more like just he's not sure what to do with himself. So to Paul, it's like, well, you know, you, you could come with me. I'm going home to Vulcan. Tucker's like, yeah, yeah, no, that sounds all right. Notice how the two are right back on the kind of footing they probably should be at at this point in their friendship, by the way. Just a nice little touch there. So then we see Joanna Cassidy. Now, I actually thought she was uh, someone else, which was uh, Genevieve Bujold. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But no, this is a different woman who tried out to be Catherine Janeway. I'm almost curious what that would have been like. Uh, if you've ever seen Cassidy and things, she's a very boisterous person. It's probably why she wasn't picked for the intended-to-be-stoic Janeway. But, and no offense to Mulgrew, obviously Mulgrew does a good job of it. It's it's the creative staff that was the problem on that front, as I've said many times. But Cassidy does bring a nice severity to her role here. And this isn't the last time we'll see her. As with season three, there was a bit of an approach to, let's bring guest stars back for more than one episode. Because again, they were trying to maintain internal continuity as well as external continuity to make sure that the whole thing felt more like a series of events that actually followed each other rather than the purely episodic thing that tried to eject everything the moment the credits hit. So even though this isn't a full season-long arc like season three, which, as we've already discussed, wasn't even a full season-long arc, they are still going to be maintaining internal continuity to an extent that really none of the other Treks have with the possible exception of Deep Space Nine and controversial opinion. I don't think even Deep Space Nine maintained internal continuity to the extent that Season 4 of Enterprise did. I don't. Now, Jesus 9 had its arcs. In fact, it had two of them. We've talked about this before, the initial Dominion War and the finale. Those were clear string continuity, and those were well-maintained. While DS9 also did reference stuff internally, it was a lot more patchwork. That's probably because that was still when there was a lot of pushback against that very concept, whereas Season 4, they're allowed to do whatever the hell they want to with regards to Enterprise. Speculation. Either way, so we are going to see all of these events have some kind of, like what I, Hernandez is going to be back in the future. You know, uh, Teles is going to be back in the future. Koss is going to be back in the future. These events are not, and, and again, this is the, the, the single most, e- the single most easiest, because I can English well, <laughs> the single best way I could come up with to explain why I prefer this approach is that stuff matters past the credits mark. I know I talked about that during Season 3, but that's really coming up in Season 4 here. And it's one of the things I like most about DS9. Stuff mattering past this marker is a big deal. Because otherwise, I just stop caring. Or rather, to be more accurate, I never care. Because it's just it's just a self-contained story. Don't mistake me, self-contained stories can be good. But if you try to introduce... It inherently limits you. Because if you try to introduce some big, huge, traumatic event for the character, and then never reference it again then that diminishes it. I love the inner light, but it's diminished by the fact that it doesn't matter again. I enjoy real life, but it's diminished by the fact that it is never referenced again. And I enjoy, uh, oh gosh. I can't think of the name of it. It's a DS9 episode. It's the episode in which uh, Kira and her adopted father, the Cardassian gentleman, and his and he's dying of some kind of illness. You remember that one? I enjoyed that episode, never referenced again. You see the problem? 
It's it's just like it's it's the asterisks or the caveats that kind of drag it down. If by contrast all three of those events had had significance and relevance and had kept coming up and had had demonstrable change for the characters and been part of arcs, then that would be awesome. But instead, it stops mattering once the credits roll. Now, I know you could add a couple asterisks to that. We could argue the Doctor's thing. We could argue Kira's thing. And we could certainly argue uh, the Picard thing. He actually does bring out that whistle a few times in future episodes, after all. But the fact remains, these huge, emotional, traumatic events aren't referenced again. They stop mattering once the credits roll. Here, to less this marriage to Koss, the events that are happening with Archer and with Hernandez, those are going to come up again, and those are going to be relevant again. And yes! And I bring this up so strongly because of New Trek. <laughs> now, I still haven't seen New Trek. I already talked about this, right? Like, I, I, I have no time to see New Trek. It's not happening. Um, but... I've heard a regular complaint that New Trek is trying a little bit too hard to be full string continuity. Now, I do like string continuity, obviously. But I feel like Season 4's approach might be better for Trek in particular. The idea of arcs, sure. But mini-arcs, in fact, they go with the three-episode format, which I've talked about before. And this kind of relevance thing. Archer and Hernandez isn't an arc, it's just part of the characters. It's just something that's there, and thus can continue to be there throughout the season. And same thing with cost. Now, that'll actually come up in a future episode, but you get my point, right? It doesn't need to be string continuity to have continuity. It just needs to be consistent past the credits line. It just needs to matter past that point, and actually come up, and actually be relevant, and actually be significant for the characters, and have impact, and blah, 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 blah. So I feel like this is overall a better approach, and might be what I would consider the ideal format for Trek. If I was in charge of Trek, this is the one I would aim for, at least at first. And then it would fail miserably, because I have no idea what I'm doing, and then I'd shoot myself. But it's okay, there's no bullets, so it just ends up being comical instead. <laughs> I got there. No, I give up. Oh, shoot. I guess I could jump, and then I'd trip, and then like I'd land on a platform just one level below me, so I'd just be like, I'm okay. Tucker. <laughs> Joanna Cassidy does a good job with Teles. And we will, like I said, see her again. Uh, we also see Koss uh, again in a bit. Cassidy manages a variety of... <sighs> a lot of people use the word cold to describe the kind of presentation she's doing. And it's valid. But the problem is people also describe uncaring as cold. And that is clearly not the case here. This is not uncaring. There's cold because you're angry about something or you're upset about something. And you're trying to keep it under wraps so you're not exploding at someone. You're just chilly to someone. Both actually being on the same axis. That is to say, I'm against you for some reason. But that axis has a critical point right at the middle of it. Caring. That is the distinction. Someone who doesn't care will not get angry or chilly towards someone. They will not go in either direction. Because they don't give a damn. The reason she is Boeing so chilly is because she cares so much and because this obviously is relevant to her. And in her own Vulcan way, she does warm to both her daughter and her, well, to Tucker. And there's some actually pretty good scenes between both dynamics there. Tucker, of course, is just trying to do the best he can here. It is night and day seeing Tucker here compared to some of the stuff in season one, I gotta say. 
He knows how to be polite. He knows how not not shove his foot into it. He's he is actually like he's he is respectful. He doesn't act respectful. He is respectful. He does the best he can here. And yet at the whole time, he doesn't back down or bend over backwards either. He doesn't do the I'll do anything kind of thing. It's more like, well, this is just me. There's a simplicity to it that I think suits Tucker. And frankly, this is the kind of character I think of. That Like, this is the person I think of when I think of Tucker, the character. Once again, I want to give huge credit to Connor Trenier for being awesome and for managing to nail this dynamic. This also leads to some other comments. You know, you, you place your own wishes over that of your families, which is something that has already been referenced to be a very Vulcan thing. Not only are they extremely traditionalist, but they are very much on the, the family chooses kind of a th- idea. Now, what's funny about that is if you really sit back and think about it, there's just a cold math to that, isn't there? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. Therefore, whatever you have to do to benefit the family is acceptable. However, even an idiot can point out the logical flaw in that. Any group is consistent of individuals. What is good for the group is not necessarily good for the individuals, because the group is made up of them. In other words, if everyone in the group sacrifices for the group, no one's actually benefiting from that. At some point or another, the individual has to matter. Otherwise, the group can't matter by virtue of being built on a basis that doesn't exist. I'm saying this so wrong, please forgive me, but this is a real problem that has affected real life, you know, politics and economics and, and social stru- and cultural structures. So it's one I've put a decent amount of thought into. It is also one that Star Trek itself has already kind of examined in Star Trek II and Star Trek III, where we saw both, the, actually Star Trek II and Star Trek IV more, but the needs of the many outweighed the needs of the one, but the needs of the one also outweighed the needs of the many. Both mattered, and that's the key part right there. Both matter, the group and the individual. This also kind of neatly ties into what Trek is all about in many ways. And let's be honest, the Vulcans and the humans being united and being, you know, a stronger group as a consequence of that uniting is one of the central pillars of the entire setting. So it makes sense that both would kind of be these opposite sides of the argument, which aren't actually in contradiction to each other, but in fact complement each other. Anyways... So, then we see, speaking of which, Vulcan politics. This is brilliant. So, Koss shows up and is like, hey, you're going to marry me to Paul. You're going to be mine. And he, he's, he's very Vulcan about it. Um, he's, he's not quite as creepy as I just intimated. But he, he at the same time, in a, for a Vulcan, no, that he, he's pretty um, uh, grabby is probably the word I would use. For a Vulcan, he doesn't actually touch her once. But he, he doesn't need to, because he's going to get a year of that in the future. If this all sounds crass, it's because I'm trying to point out just how messed up this situation actually is. No, I want you. No, I'm, I'm going to get you. Notice that he, let's see, so he first he just asks simply. For, no, first he states simply. Then he asks. Then he tries to bribe. Then he tries to bargain. The bribe with the mother. And the bargain with, you only have to spend one year with me, and then you can pursue your career again. But I get you for a year. <laughs> wow, dude. And of course, the politics involved. This is so Vulcan. By the way, this will also matter after the credits. Because it turns out that T'Pol was involved in Pajem. Duh. But I, <laughs> what I mean by that, it's, of course she was involved in Pajem. But I want to stress, she was involved in that. She was a participant in that. Not the initiator. 
She was culpable, and for that culpability, the High Command wanted to punish her. But it couldn't, because she was over there on a ship, and High Command already had a tenuous grip on her, so let's fabricate evidence against her mother, and then try to drum her mother out of her career. That is straight-up corruption. That, that That's almost one-to-one, the, the typical definition. It's not actually, because corruption is, is more about a personal gain rather than uh, this kind of... Uh, this is more of a blackmail kind of a situation. But this this is messed up, is what I'm trying to say. And very Vulcan. That's the really the really interesting part about this. This is exactly how the Vulcans operate. They have their own things, their own politics, their own internecine matters. But, well, you know what? I'm going to walk that back. This isn't very Vulcan. Rather, it's very Vulcan and how the Vulcans accept this. That's probably a better way to put that. Teles put, accepts it, after all. She accepts resigning rather than being drummed out. The rest of the academy accepts this situation rather than trying to contest it. And no one actually bothers to try and be like, oh, that's unacceptable. Even though everyone involved has to know that she's actually innocent of any charges. But none of them are willing to openly express or admit what they actually feel. And that is very Vulcan. Now, the actual blackmail itself isn't. But that will come up later because matters after the credits. So, this then leads to her mentioning the, the possible union between T'Pol and Tucker. She brings up one word I want to really shine a light on, too. Shame. Imagine the shame your children would feel. Sadly, that absolutely tracks. I've already covered two works of Star Trek fiction, which very clearly shine a light on the kind of crap that Spock had to put up with being this exact thing. And that's in the future from now, when the, when the Vulcans have gone through a few things that they'll be going through in Season 4. In other words, they're better off by Spock's time, and he still had to go through this crap. Uh, that would be uh, Yesteryear in TAS and 2009, the movie, consequently. Both of which did a pretty good job of showcasing the same idea. This is all appropriate, by the way. And once again, shows that whole internal continuity thing I mentioned. Because it goes backwards as well as forwards. The first time Tucker and T'Pol connected was during Breaking the Ice, haha, all the way back in Season 1. You remember that? And it was because there was this notification about her engagement to Koss. Here we are. It is very apropos that in this episode, we find out the level of feelings that the two have for each other. And that's that's really the important part. DePaul admits that, you know, she's going to marry Koss, and it is the correct choice, and yada yada. This could be argued. I'm not going to go into it right now, but it could be argued. Which leads to a really legitimately great scene. Uh, Cassidy and Trenier act off of each other very well here, because Teles goes into Tucker... And she flat out states, you know, when have you informed her of the fact that you are in love with her? And she says that so clearly and distinctly. It also implicates something that Tucker himself admits flat out just a few seconds later. That at this point in time, Tucker's feelings for T'Pol are beyond the you're hot phase. But something more akin to an actual emotional connection has developed there. Remember, these two started off as friends and have been friends for years. They've also connected with each other in a way that neither have with anyone else. And they've been through their, through a lot with each other, and been there for each other through the hells they have been through. So it makes sense that there is a stronger, legitimate bond. 
One of the things I speak most often against is the romance of the week. This is not that. In a similar vein to, um, not quite as well done, if I'm being honest, but in a similar vein to Bellana and Paris over on Voyager, this relationship has been building for a while. They've earned it. And thus, when it comes into this kind of fruition, I'm just sitting here nodding like, yeah, no, of course, at this point, he actually does legitimately love her. And frankly, I think she loves him in return. After all, his mere presence here is probably helping her to go through this thing she does not want to do because of the strength she can pull from that connection she has with him. So, thumbs up from me on this one. And of course, Tucker proves this, and so does Teles. Both of them prove that they love T'Pol. Why? Because Teles, despite being far more traditional and far more Vulcan, flat out admits that Tucker should, should, go and admit the truth of his feelings to T'Pol. And her excuse is very valid and very logical. T'Pol needs all the information available to make her judgment. Tucker declines because he does care about her and he knows that she's already doing something she doesn't want to do. And she's doing it under difficult and terrible circumstances. And making things worse for her just for his own benefit is not in his wheelhouse. It's not going to happen. Both prove their love for her as a mother and as a lover. It's good stuff. Which leads us into, I guess we'll call it the B-plot at this point. Archer. <laughs> 27 losses. This is the continuation of Archer's arc, the one I spoke of so fondly back in Azadi Prime. I know it's been a little while since we've really addressed it, but Archer is a broken man. Someone who has been cracked in half and is still trying to figure out... <sighs> How do I phrase this? Because it's such a unique feeling. It's not the fact that he's lost himself. He says, he, I lost something of myself out there. And that's true, but it's more like there's this guilt and shame. But that's the obvious stuff. That That's the stuff that's just weighing him down. But underneath all of that, what's really damaging him is the fact is not the fact that he did these horrible things. It's the fact that he's trying to come to grips with how he could do those horrible things. How could he accomplish this? He He's an explorer. He wanted to go out there and see things. He doesn't even consider himself military. Hernandez has another line about that. I'm not sure I would be comfortable with military being on the bridge. You know, His response, you better get used to it. He, he does not even see himself in such a light. So how is it possible that he did these? How? Because that's the question. It's not what is he. He knows what he is. And it's not who he is. He knows who he is. But how is he like this is something that just, he, he can't deal with it. And so he tries to wrap his mind around it and he fails. And for once, his arguments and his anger actually make sense. He, he, argue, you know, he talks about Jeffries. We needed even more weapons than I thought. And, you know, Saval armchairs him, which is something I do all the time. <laughs> Saval armchairs him. And it's like, you, he just explodes, completely loses it, to an extent that Archer never has before. And keep in mind, Archer has been badly written before and has always been very yelly, and he still explodes harder than he ever has before. At the, at the mere implication that he murdered those Vulcans. Now, Saval is like, no, I'm not implying that. But Archer takes it that way because Archer didn't save them. That was a choice he made. The second-guessing, the questioning. And, of course... The conclusion, no, we had to get out of there. How can he be like this? 
And so all of that rage and spittle is right there for us just to flat out order him to take a vacation, which is the correct call because he needs this degaussing moment. It helps that his connections with Hernandez are pretty good, and he does actually have some legitimate chemistry with Adam Maris, who does some good stuff, and will be seen after the credits. <sighs> Hernandez keeps poking him. We also find out that uh, the planet they were on earlier is Archer, becomes Archer 4 in the future. If you don't know the reference, that's the one, that's the connection to yesterday's Enterprise, which, as a small aside, given how close Archer 4 is to Earth, that weirdly enough, helps to add to yesterday's Enterprise because it means the Klingons in the Klingon-Human War that was happening at that point in time actually managed to reach all the way to that close to Earth, practically next door from an interstellar perspective. Yikes. Anywho, so Archer finally comes to his point. You know, he... He talks about maybe we shouldn't be explorers. Maybe we shouldn't get out there and see things and do things. And she's like, you're kidding, right? And he's like, no, listen, no one else does this. He's right. I've talked many times before about the Sengoku Jedi of the interstellar situation at this point in time. But most of that is conjecture that isn't supported on the screen. And I'm, I'm willing to admit that. Most of that is more head canon than literal canon. Until season four. In season four, this becomes official, and this will actually become a subplot and will matter past the credits for, uh, for several things, including an entire, uh, one of the arcs will be entirely about that concept. But he mentions it in brief here. By the way, you paying attention? Because we mentioned the genetic engineering thing in the previous episode. We've mentioned the DePaul Tucker thing. We've got the human supremacy anti-alien thing that's going to be coming up next. I'll talk about that next. And we've got the idea of the Sengoku Jedi and the different issues with the different people and the aliens and how they interact with each other in the, in the local space. All of these will be things that will come up in future plots. I'm just pointing out how even in a small ways these themes have been established early on. So he mentions how most of the other races, they don't reach out because that means they don't overextend themselves. They don't expose themselves, and in so doing, they would be safer. The great irony here, of course, is the fact that if humanity had decided to keep to themselves, it wouldn't have stopped the Zindi from coming in and attacking them, because that was a manipulation by the Tatarians, so wouldn't have stopped anything. That really was an external force smashing in in a way that disrupted the local political situation. It's a shame the Zindi would have made really good allies at this point in time, but I guess they've got their own internal affairs to deal with. And remember, they'll never be mentioned again. I hope you liked that little dream sequence, because that is actually the definitive last time the Zindi were referenced, unless they're in New Trek, which I wouldn't know about. Archer is so broken. If they knew what I'd done, they wouldn't want to shake my hand or get my autograph or, or name schools after me. Everyone's treating him like some big hero. One of the worst things someone who is feeling tremendously guilty over something can suffer is everyone praising them for the very thing they feel so guilty for. This actually doesn't come up all that often in fiction, but when it does, it's usually very powerful, specifically because of that direct contrast. I'm a horrible person. You're a great hero. Wham, wham, wham. And the whole time they're just, it, it just makes it worse and it magnifies and magnifies and magnifies until Janeway's saying, all right, enough. Because they can't deal with how much this is bothering them, and everyone is constantly reminding them of it. You'll notice that uh, Hernandez goes out of her way to consistently prod Archer about that, probably because she knows him well enough to know that this is what's bothering him, and she needs him to accept and open about this so that he can start to cope with it. 
So he he explodes and he's like, I lost something to myself out there. He, he there's this bit where she implies that he's suicidal. I don't think he is. If I might jump in on that one for a moment, I don't think Archer is suicidal here so much as he's just not dealing. You're gonna go climbing in the night without a buddy? Well, you might fall. Okay, and like he just doesn't. It's it's not that he doesn't care. He just doesn't know what to do. All the things that he can do and has done to cope aren't working. And he's just, I'm just going to try this, or I'm just going to try this, or I'm just going to try this. And it just keeps not being better. So yeah, sure, I'm just going to go keep climbing. Why? Because it did something, right? Now, this is the only flaw of this episode, in my opinion, because Hernandez, you know, kisses him. And implication, implication, and the two decide to reconnect their relationship, which is implied uh, having uh, happened before this. So this isn't an out-of-nowhere thing. And um, that apparently was enough for Archer to get a handle on things. Now, that is being dismissive. But it is kind of how the episode showcases it. It feels like it wraps up a little bit too neatly, when in fact it would probably be preferable if Archer continued to deal with this going forwards. However... Unfortunately, this is mostly the end of Archer's character arc. Now, we'll see if this continues forward in any small ways, but by memory, this is the end of Archer's arc, and as a consequence, is the end of Archer's character stuff for the rest of the show. It's it's the Cecil Harvey problem, right? You had a good arc, and then it stopped, and you kept being the main character. <laughs> okay. Nevertheless, um, I do like how Hernandez will be a recurring character. She was uh, one of the many things that was going to come back in Season 5, should that happen. I just thought I'd point that out. Not Nothing written in stone, but then again, nothing in Season 5 was written in stone, after all. It was just an idea that was bouncing around. And, of course, he gets a good moment with Saval. And Saval does two things which are very un-Vulcan, both of which he does very deliberately in order to show his gratitude for the situation. He says, thank you. Remember, in this very episode, they mentioned that expressing gratitude is a human custom. So he says thank you, and then he offers the handshake. That's also important. That is another arc, which is now being started. It's actually Soval's character arc. He has been shown mostly in an antagonistic light this whole time. I think, frankly, the only reason he is not a straight-up villain is because of the actor, who has a natural charisma to him, to make him seem less horrible. But now, Soval's going to start moving as a character... And that's awesome. We'll be seeing more of that in the future because credits. <laughs> I should just start saying that. Credits. <laughs> and you'll know what that means, right? This leads us to the third and smallest story arc. I had a whole speech in my head for this. I'm going to screw it up. I, I was doing the dishes in the middle of the episode because I had to, you know, I was eating breakfast. I was like, hang on, pause episode. And I just built the whole speech in my head and now I'm going to screw it up. So let's just try this here. <sighs> Aliens attack Earth. Okay, that sucks. Seven million people die. Yeah, that mega sucks. That's horrible. And people don't know how to deal with that. There's this line Hernandez mentioned earlier. Sorry, I have an itch on my upper lip. And she mentions, people have had nothing to do but hold their breath for a whole year. Yeah. Remember, Earth doesn't have the military hardware to really repel a real attack. Frankly, most of the races don't. That's kind of the point of the Sengoku Jedi. But Earth is an even worse case than most of them. Their fleet is a bunch of plinkers. They have one major ship, the NX-01. They are building their second major ship. Remember, it's been, what, ten months? So they're still like four months out for the Columbia launching, or, or some equivalent thereof. So they're still dealing with all this crap. 
So they've been attacked, and naturally they do the obvious thing. Phlox even mentions how much he understands this. You know, it's, these, these people have suffered a horrific and traumatic attack. So they're lashing out, and that's understandable. Doesn't make it right, doesn't make it good, doesn't make it correct, doesn't make it acceptable. But it does, it is understandable. It does make sense. Because people like things to be simple. It's actually quite simple. Humans spend all this time hating each other because of different nationality or different skin color. Then they got past that. Then they started hating each other over social standing, over their economic position and their personal worth. We actually see this. I commented on this in my rumination on the episodes about the Bell, uh, Bell Riots. I don't remember the name of the episodes. Please forgive me. They're DS9 episodes. But that came up there. People had moved on to being more uh, economically biased against each other rather than you know, in terms of skin color, in terms of race or gender or uh, nationality. So they moved on to this particular form of tribalism. Then they moved on a little bit further past that to the point where they were willing to accept um, the classification of all people being okay. Okay, so we're cool. All humans are okay, right? But not aliens. After all, we've been warned about them Ferengi at the Academy. Or we could point out over on TNG how someone's career was nearly demolished because of the fact that he happened to be related to a Romulan. Now, yes, he lied about that, and that's the issue, but that wasn't why people were doing the witch hunt on him. Or we could point out how much bias people had against the Klingons for so many years, both in TOS or in... You get where I'm going on this? The general presentation here is that people just kind of shift the borders of their tribal mentality, but don't actually stop the us versus them thing. Now, tribalism is fine within reason. I know that's strange to say, but it's true. There is nothing wrong with rooting for your team. There is a lot wrong with beating the crap out of a member of the other team because you don't like their face. Now, there are asterisks even attached to that because everything has asterisks attached to it. But the point remains. Go team, right? Go purples. I'm with it. Oh, you don't like purples? Do I? No. No. That. I, I don't have a newspaper to roll. I'll roll, roll up my notepad here. Hang on, hang on. That's, that's super not going to work. Hang on. I can do this. I can do this. There we go. No. Bad. It's the worst roll up ever. This presentation, this idea, this showcasing helps to put a little bit of a light on things because the, the people prefer the simple things, right? I, I mentioned the Klingons and the Romulans thing earlier. Try to remember the Zindi are not their enemies. That's the thing because it's like you, you almost see the episode trying to say, well, not all aliens are bad. Oh, so there's some aliens who are bad. Well, no, not all Zindi are bad. Okay, well, is it just the Zindi reptilians who are bad? Well, no, not all the Zindi reptilians are bad. And people are, oh, where's the line? Because the problem is the mere fact that they're looking for a line. No, really, that is the issue here. The mere fact that they're trying to find a clear and obvious, simple dividing line to say, bad, good, line. And they keep dividing it by groups and cultures and rather than individuals. I mean, I understand that you can't do that in totality. But if you can't, maybe this is my opinion, but if you can't have the time, effort, and resources to devote to determining which individuals are on that side of the line and which individuals are on this side of the line, then maybe you shouldn't be thinking of it in terms of a line at all. 
And if you are someone who is in a position where you have to think of it in terms of a line, like maybe you're a head of state or a member of the military or a member of the intelligence agency or whatever, then maybe you should make the time to figure out the individuals rather than saying, Vroom! and just putting all Ferengi or all Cardassians or all whatever on the other side of that line. You see my point? Because the episode even implies this idea of... You know, well, there's good aliens and there's bad aliens. But even that isn't right, is it? It's not even correct. And it is very simple. Understandable, but unacceptable. I feel like I've had a lot to talk about this week. Like I said, we're really getting into the good stuff here, season four. I hope you all have enjoyed my thoughts. I am dreading and terrified of the comments that are going to show up for this one. But I will weather them as I always do. I do still look forward to reading them. See you next time.